This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to Clued In with Lou Carbone, a thought-provoking opportunity to expand your perspectives and advance the impact you can make in the CX, EX, and patient experience space. Lou's undeniable combination of the depth of experience and knowledge in this space is unparalleled. As a driver inside organizations as well as consulting, Lou offers distinctive thought stimulation, is a dedicated mentor and teacher. Today I have a very, very special guest, one of the very special people in my life, probably the most next to my wife and my children, is a very dear friend that I'm so grateful to have in my life uh, for opening up new vistas and his generosity of spirit, of learning. I've learned so much from Dr. Leonard Berry member of the faculty at Texas A&M, actually was the first PhD graduate from ASU, their marketing department. Len is the, uh, has the Zale chair of retail marketing, uh, retail and marketing at Texas A&M at the May School. Len is such a special person and people who've worked with him have made major impact in the world of experience and service. In fact, Len, Valerie Zeifham, and A. Parsuman, otherwise known to his dear friends as Parsu, authored the articles and the school of thinking around service quality as the world moved from thinking about products and manufacturing to understanding their work was fundamental in helping to shift people to understand the difference between service and and basic goods and change the world. Len did not stop there. There was a very special time in my life that was a very special time in Len's life. And it's through Len that I got to see this world. Len did a sabbatical at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a sabbatical that he did in Arizona, studying the Mayo Clinic. Len has actually been in surgical units. He got to where no one else ever got to go at the Mayo Clinic because he is such a special person. He's a humanitarian, he's passionate, he is so wise and intelligent he has a generosity of spirit that is, is uncomparable to anybody else I've ever met. And I'm so pleased that he could join me today to share his perspectives and that we could chat together today. We get together as often as we can, generally at least once a year at special awards that take place at the Mayo Clinic to honor his beloved mother. Behind Len are books. Len could almost fill the entire bookcase in his background. He's written 15 books. And in the books that he's written, they have literally been way ahead of their time in understanding and marking critical perspectives. The soul of customer service really looked at culture before other people were really delving into culture with the depth. And he studied organizations all across the country in a sabbatical before his sabbatical at Mayo Clinic. And then at the end of his sabbatical at Mayo Clinic, which has never really ended for Len, he's still such a great student and supporter of the clinic and its work. He co-authored Management Lessons from the Mayo Clinic with another very dear friend, an absolutely spectacular person, Kent Saltman. I've met so many wonderful people through Len. I can never, ever repay him for the difference he's made in my life. Uh, 
So, Len, thank you for joining me today and sharing this valuable time to share with others what you have impacted my life with. Oh, thank you, Lou, and thank you for the beautiful introduction, my friend. And it's always a pleasure to be with you, whether it's virtually like today or in person, as uh, we've been together so many times over the years. My pleasure, Lou. Thank you. Thank you. When Len finished his sabbatical at Mayo Clinic, it was life changing. And uh, Len, if you could just spend a moment or two, I, I remember watching that transformation as we first drove down to Mayo together when you went to see what your office was going to be like. <laughs> and then week by week as we got together at various places, including uh, my doing an executive exam <laughs> that Len arranged for me at Mayo. Could you talk just a little bit about what that journey was like and how moving that was that moved you from traditional marketing into really dedicating the rest of your life's work um, that to healthcare and in improving the experience around healthcare. So Lou, uh, until my sabbatical that led me to the Mayo Clinic, uh, I was a services researcher, service quality services marketing researcher that focused exclusively on commercial enterprise. On, on retail and financial services and transportation services and other uh, other services and knew little about healthcare, which is why I chose healthcare for my sabbatical. And um, once uh, I got to Mayo Clinic and I was in residence there, as you mentioned in your in your comments, I was in residence there both in Rochester at the main campus and then at one of their newer campuses in Arizona. Once I got the Mayo Clinic and started studying health services, I was so fascinated. I was just so, uh, so enthralled by this very complex, uh, very important, uh, really sacred service that was different in kind, not degree, from all the commercial services I'd studied before. This service called healthcare. And at Mayo, I got to do everything uh, in order to further my learning. And I, I, I got to observe the doctor-patient interaction in the exam room hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times during my sabbatical. I got to uh, go on hospital rounds virtually every day with the clinical teams to meet with the patients and families and to see that process. I, I, uh, I observed a number of different surgeries, as you as you mentioned. I put on, I put on the scrubs. I washed in. I was right at the table. They they would never let me do anything. But uh, <laughs> even though you had a doctor, <laughs> I thought at least let me solve the patient. But no, they wouldn't let me do that. <laughs> uh, fantastic experience. But what happened, Lou? is during that experience, the months that I was at the Mayo Clinic, uh, I got truly hooked on healthcare. I, I, I viewed it as a service different in, in kind than degree from all the services I'd studied before. And I started learning about all the problems in healthcare, all the issues, all the, the waste, and the patient safety issues, and the shortages of nurses and physicians and different specialties. And, and the high rising cost of healthcare. And I, I was learning about all these issues. And with my background as a business person, as a service researcher, I thought, you know, we, we, these are fixable. These are not intractable issues. Uh, and darn it, I'm going to go back to Texas A&M and I'm going to start to help. I'm going to learn about healthcare. I know a lot about service in general, but I'm going to learn more about service in healthcare. And I'm going to start tackling uh, some of these uh, problems I've been learning about, some of these issues. And I made that commitment to myself before I even left Mayo Clinic to come back to Texas A&M, my faculty position. And that was 20 years ago. I was at Mayo Clinic in 2001, 2002 for my sabbatical year. And it's now 20 years later, 2021. And uh, Lou, I've been true to that commitment. 
uh, I have focused 90% of my work and much of my teaching on healthcare service. Uh, so I had to basically reinvent myself from a services researcher to a health services researcher and all that entailed. And I had to learn how to publish in a medical journal, which I'd never had an experience with before. That was really hard. And it took me months to really be, after I got back to Texas and m took me months really to believe that, you know what, I can do this. I, I can make a contribution. I, I, I can do this. But for months uh, after I returned, uh, I thought, you know what, uh, I, I can't learn what I need to learn about healthcare to really make a difference. I just had my toe in the water at the Mayo Clinic. But I kept at it and uh, eventually got a medical journal article published took me a year and a half to get that done. And then I realized, yeah, I, maybe I can. Um, I can do this. And uh, I've been at it ever since. So longer answer than you asked for in Lou, but that's what happened that's, to me at Mayo Clinic. I just got inspired and I'm still inspired today. Len, after Mayo, you did another sabbatical at four, I believe, institutions uh, that all happened to be in Wisconsin. You were looking for institutions that were ranked at a certain level and found them all in Wisconsin for some reason. I don't know whether it was uh, beer or cheese that uh, that made, <laughs> made these such incredible institutions. But well, you began yeah, I'll tell you what, Lou, uh, how I got to Wisconsin. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> beer because I don't drink beer. And it wasn't cheese. Cheese, because my gastro system just doesn't allow me to eat cheese. Tolerance. Yeah. So it wasn't cheese, and it wasn't beer. What happened? This was uh, in 2014. Uh, no, 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 no. I got that wrong. 2011. I did another sabbatical in 2014. We can talk about that if you want later. Yes. In 2011, um, I was. This was 10 years after my Mayo sabbatical, so I was ready to go on the road again, and and do more field research, where I actually lived in another part of the country to study. And uh, it was actually uh, Noreen uh, Bisonano who is at the time was the CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, and a good friend of mine then and, and, and now. And I called her and said, I'm ready to go in the field again. You remember I went to Mayo and then I've done a lot of research projects since Mayo, but I'm ready to go in the field for an extended period of time. Where should I go? And she said, Len, you need to go to Wisconsin. That's how it happened. And I said, Marine, Wisconsin, <laughs> mean. Uh, she said, Lynn, uh, we work with three health systems at the IHI who are based in, that are based in Wisconsin. Uh, we work with many other health systems, but we work with three really high performance health systems in Wisconsin. And you need to go and study them uh, because there's some magic happening in Wisconsin. And you need to figure out what's going on, and maybe you can teach some of the lessons from Wisconsin to the rest of the nation. And she sold me that moment, and she told me which, which institutions I need to study. She made the introductions, because uh, I had to go through the same due diligence on the part of these institutions uh, before they'd let me come in and look under the covers, you know. I, yeah. They're not just going to say yes. Uh, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll take care of you. We'll let you see anything you want to see. Uh, no organization is going to do that. And uh, Marine paved the way. And so I went to Wisconsin in 2011. I was there for four months. I got a lot of frequent flyer points from the residence inn. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed at the residence inn for four, uh, five weeks in Green Bay when I was studying at... Uh, 
at uh, 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 Bellin Health, and I spent another five weeks in in Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, at the Residence Inn when I was <laughs> studying at Beta Care, and I also studied at uh, Gunderson Health in La Crosse, Wisconsin, but they actually had a, 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 a condo unit that they owned that they let me stay in. Uh, but uh, I got a lot of frequent fireflies. <laughs> <laughs> you were a resident uh, for sure. <laughs> staff, I knew all the staff. They felt so sorry for this poor guy living alone in a hotel room. <laughs> in Wisconsin. <laughs> I was in Wisconsin during football season, so I did see the uh, uh, Green Bay Packers, Packers game. game which yeah. is an experience unto itself. Uh, it was. And I don't eat cheese, but I saw a lot of people wearing cheese, <laughs> cheese, heads. cheese on their heads. <laughs> and it, it really outdoes it does Aggie football. There's no one wearing cheddar heads in, in Aggie land. No, no, um, no. They, they do other things in Aggie, in Aggie so, land. So then in from that, you then went to IHI. And uh, was it yes. 2014 as a fellow? Yes, as a senior fellow, and that's when I started to study cancer care at Lou, uh, how we can improve the service experience for cancer patients and their families. And I've been uh, focused on that for the last five, six years. So then, with that, what I'd like to do is sort of now jump from the past to today. Yes. Today's a very special day um, in as much as uh, Mayo Proceedings has a spectacular article that was the editor's choice and just released today. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about that uh, that article. And what is so beautiful is Len sums up the healthcare experience as being variable, complex, and personal. And those three pieces, sorting them out, he's dedicated almost 20 years now to understanding that and guiding organizations uh, through his writing and collaboration with outstanding medical professionals and uh, recently co-authored this dynamic article that is called Trust-Based Partnerships Are Essential and Achievable in Healthcare Service. And that is a very hopeful message, especially coming out of COVID. And uh, we will have a direct link to the PDF uh, for that article. And I implore both healthcare professionals and individuals that realize that many experiences share what becomes elevated and expo exponentially more critical in healthcare around variability, complexity, and the need for personalization, which exists widespread, but exponentially in healthcare. So there's a lot to be learned, uh, no matter what business you're in, but in healthcare in particular, I think what Len has mined in the depth of study in healthcare applies broadly, but most, because you have to dig so deep in healthcare, uh, because it is exponentially more complex and so emotionally driven uh, that it's just his work has been outstanding. And uh, that article um, is is uh, really great because it begins to talk about the difference between transactional um, experience in healthcare, but relational experiences in healthcare where relations become critically important. And in that trust-based area, Len has outlined with his team the distinctive characteristics in that area. And there, there were four in particular that, that struck me so deeply uh, because you, you will hear the word empathy often thrown around like crazy. But what Len in this article and the team talk about is empathetic creativity. 
And there's a story in the article that is so moving uh, about a husband and wife who both succumbed to COVID. And just prior to their death, the staff moved two beds together and allowed them to hold hands. And they died literally, I guess, Len, within minutes of each other? Yes, they did, Lou. They, uh, they, they were in separate rooms in the hospital, both with COVID, both near death. And, um, you know, be, and what the staff did is knowing that they both were near death, but they were in separate rooms. This is a couple that had been married for more than 50 years. Is they broke protocol. They bent the rule because in COVID, everybody's supposed to be in their own room, you know, for um, obvious reasons. And uh, they, they bent the rules, a couple of nurses, and they... Um, put the husband and wife together in the same room, put two beds side by side, and uh, put their hands together. So as they passed away, they passed away holding hands. It's a heartbreaking but beautiful story at the same time. It's also a story, Lou, of, um, of the, it's a story that illustrates the, the the clues of kindness. You have taught me so much about experience management and clue management and and what a powerful clue, not only for the uh, other staff uh, members in the hospital that heard that story, that heard what happened, but for the family of uh, the children of this couple that learned what the nurses had done. Uh, the, the children of that, of that couple will never forget what those nurses did for their mother and father. And uh, so that that's an example of empathetic creativity where you combine the power of empathy, of truly understanding the other person and the other person's concerns and being non-judgmental and finding a way to help, you combine the power of empathy with the power of creativity, the power of personal innovation. And you put those two ideas together and what comes out of it is the possibility of a story such as the one that we've just discussed of the two, uh, the husband and wife, couple that uh, passed away within minutes of each other from COVID-19. Len, that, that, that empathetic creativity, again, um, was demonstrated at Mayo, I think, when you told the story that uh, every time I hear you speak, and when we were in Mexico, I think you told the story. Um, it, it, you, we all, including yourself, our eyes get a little teary. And it was a young woman who was passing away and they put an impromptu wedding together? Yes, uh, and Mayo has done that multiple times since um, since that happened for the first time. And it happened for the first time when I actually was there. It happened in Arizona when I was in residence in their hospital. And um, there was uh, a patient that was near death within a day or two or three uh, in their ICU. And the clinical team at Mayo knew that the patient was uh, dying, actively dying. The patient uh, was the mother of a daughter who was scheduled to get married in about two or three months from then. So um, when the uh, clinical team informed the family of uh, the, the mother's impending death. The daughter asked uh, the staff if it was possible for uh, her to get married um, as soon as possible in the hospital so her mother could witness the marriage. 
And within four hours, a number of staff put their wits together, their creativity together, and created a wedding. They recruited one of the chaplains to perform the wedding, one of the hospital chaplains. They got flowers. They got uh, someone to play the uh, piano, great music. And uh, they allowed, encouraged uh, patients who were in the hospital, because the hospital is built on four floors and there are atrium uh, areas where, uh, where patients and staff can look out over the atrium into the lobby and observe what's going on in the lobby. They can come out of their room uh, onto, uh, onto uh, an area where they can look out over the, over the lobby. And so they informed everyone in the hospital that a wedding was going to take place at X hour. And it did. It took place about uh, four hours after the uh, daughter of the patient made the request. And there was wedding cake and there was everything. My gosh, what a, a tremendously a powerful clue to uh, not only the patients who observed, but to the staff, Lou, that this, a clue of this is the kind of organization we are. This is what we do. Len, that's so powerful. Um, and, you know, what we hear is so much about almost every so many companies in, in healthcare in particular talk about empathy and and people will think oh well gee i have to kind of say something like well i'm sorry you're not going to make it to your daughter's wedding oh that's so sad but this idea of empathetic creativity provides demonstrated actual actions that move values to virtues that the organization is virtuous and living the values that it speaks about by allowing that kind of activity. And I, I just, that it, it, it's so much more than um, lip service to, oh, be empathetic. It's demonstrated empathy, this idea of, um, I, I just absolutely love the idea of adding creativity to empathy that how can I really demonstrate that empathy versus, oh, it's it's almost like thinking that empathy is, is superficial versus something so deep and moving and touching, and it makes such a big difference. Uh, I think that call to healthcare is so important, and this article is, it really opens up vistas of, um, Rather than paying lip service, rather than just, you know, patting someone's hand and saying, oh, I understand, to really be engrossed in understanding and feeling, uh, but taking action on that. It, then it becomes genuine. It's not disingenuous empathy. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Lou. Uh, uh, organizational values that that don't guide behavior are not really organizational values. They're simply words printed on a piece of paper or on a wall or on, on you know, some other surface. So then the other, uh, the second item was discretionary effort. And I mm -hmm. love this one. Uh, I mean, we all live this. We work with people. We see organizations. Uh, would you describe your thoughts around discretionary effort. Yes, Lou, this is uh, this idea is based on the reality that everyone at work makes decisions about how much extra effort they're going to put into their work. And how much extra effort they put into their work is actually discretionary. So the definition of discretionary effort that I use when I teach this concept to my students is the difference between the actual amount of effort and energy you bring to your work and the minimum amount of energy required to avoid penalty, to avoid adverse consequence as an employee. So the difference between the actual amount of energy and effort you bring to the job the role 
to the service and the minimum amount required to avoid uh, criticism or lower pay or even getting fired as an employee, the difference between the max, the actual amount you bring of effort and the minimum required to avoid penalty is discretionary effort. It's, it's what I call volunteerism. Volunteerism even when you're actually paid. Yeah. You think yeah. of volunteers as people that do work that they aren't, they're not paid for. That and that that's one category of volunteerism. Yeah. But yeah. in fact, everyone who works and who's paid is also a volunteer. They volunteer or choose not to degrees of extra effort. And so we write about that in, in the article and, and we have a story. We have a stories to illustrate each of the concepts in the articles, including discretionary effort and, and uh, one of my favorite stories and uh, that we use in the article, Lou, to illustrate uh, this concept is this an, a true story. They're all true. But this is a true story that comes from one of my former students. She's now about 22 years old, 23 years old. And um, she was in my healthcare seminar three years ago at, at Texas A&M. And she's now uh, in the workforce and she's healthy and she's doing extremely well. But when she was 14, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. 14, a brand new teenager diagnosed with brain cancer. How cruel is that? And she uh, needed surgery. And she wrote in her term paper, which she then shared because the students all discussed their papers with their classmates in the seminar. She shared openly with her classmates. She wrote a story about her cancer uh, in, her, in one of her term papers for my seminar. And I took, with her permission, I took a paragraph from her term paper uh, and I used it in this article. And I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to read the paragraph a little bit. Here's what she wrote. Uh, her name is Susan. It's actually not a real name, but when you talk about a real patient in a medical article, you don't use real names. So I call her Susan in the article. And this is a story that happened several hours before she was going to go in and get brain surgery, actually have the surgery. Here's, her, here's, here's what she wrote. Quote, when Ava, my nurse, came by before surgery, she looked me in the eye and she said, Susan, I'm going to braid your hair back so we only have to shave what we need. What Ava did shaped how I viewed myself every time I glanced in the mirror during recovery and when I walked into school surrounded by normal girls. Ava probably doesn't remember braiding my hair but that moment stuck with me for the past six years. Oh my gosh, Lou, when I saw it, normally professors don't like to read term papers. That's not the most fun part of the job. <laughs> when I saw this, this story in, in Susan's paper, uh, my gosh, it hit me right between the eyes. What a powerful story. I'll never forget the story. And, and uh, you know, and, and then she shared it with her classmates. She told her classmates that yes, she is is a she is someone that actually had cancer as a as a teenager. And um, but what a powerful story of a unbelievable cancer clue that you know Ava's clues. Uh, Ava's the nurse's clues, Lou. Susan yeah. remembers these clues. Six years later, it's it's unbelievable how embedded in her memory and how deep that impression is. And after all, experiences are literally an impression. And exactly. and it's just so phenomenal. And Len, the other thing that you talk about with discretionary income is uh, not discretionary income. <laughs> I'm watching CNN or some other Stations income, you know that's that's something too, Lou. <laughs> but we, we can all use more of it, right? 
Exactly. I guess uh, unconsciously I'm thinking of discretionary income, but um, discretionary effort. Uh, yes, Lou, I'm listening. Discretionary effort talks about not hiring just for skills, but hiring for character, for the the individual and the values that they have and the virtues that they hold. Uh, I I thought that was extraordinary. And is it hard? Two questions around that, two parts. Is it hard in an area like healthcare where there's a scarcity of people available? And then additionally, for an HR department or people doing interviews to embed that in their thinking in making final decisions, especially when you look at some of the institutions that you've worked with, the technical skills are at the absolute peak of what technical skills would be in healthcare. Lou, it, it, it's hard in any organization to to hire for values, not just skills, to hire the person, not just the resume, because it's just so tempting to hire the resume, uh, especially if you have uh, jobs open and you need you know, the manpower and the woman power to serve your customers, uh, to do the work. So it's hard in that respect because to hire well and to hire well, to hire effectively, that's really the first rule of improving service quality is to hire the right people for the right jobs. Yeah. If you don't do that well, Lou, nothing else works. Exactly. You know, and I teach that. I write about that. I try to drill that into uh, you know into the thoughts and of my students so it'll stick to the bones when they're graduated and their managers and they're hiring because if you don't hire the right people Lou nothing else works when it comes to creating a great customer experience yeah. great patient experience now in healthcare it's especially important because Uh, of the way you started this conversation, Lou, with me, and you talked about the complexity, the variability, and the the personal importance and the personal nature of healthcare, it's especially important to hire the right people for a service with these qualities, you know? Yeah. Personal, uh, a, a service like healthcare that's so personal, that's so intimate, that's so important, that's so high stakes, I mean, uh, we we have to, as patients, Lou, we have to uh, tell uh, stuff to our doctors that maybe we haven't told to anybody else, yeah. right? Yeah. Really private stuff. Exactly. You know, and, and we have to trust them to be able to do that. Uh, to be comfortable enough to do that. Because if we don't tell the truth to our doctors, we're raising the risk of a bad diagnosis and a bad treatment of, uh, you know, of, of not being uh, helped by the people that we desperately need help from, especially if we're really sick. So, yeah, uh, uh, hiring, hiring the right people, hiring for values, not just resume. Obviously, you have to hire people with the right skills, the right knowledge, the right background, the right resume. Obviously, that's critical, but that's the floor. That's where you start. Then you have to hire the right people. And that means hiring people with the right kind of values who can create empathetic creativity, uh, who can, uh, who can uh, mitigate the fear of patients, which is another concept we write about, who will be uh, 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 high-level volunteers in the way we talk about discretionary effort. That requires hiring people with the right values, not just with the right skill set. 
It, it's absolutely phenomenal. And then when we talk about fear mitigation, it, it brings to mind um, you know, the, the fact that my dad had passed away at uh, age 55. And as I approached 55, I was in, in a panic that I was going to have a heart attack. It was like I felt, boy, this is my grandfather died at 48. And uh, during my executive exams at uh, Mayo Clinic, Dr. Hensrud, a phenomenal physician at, at Mayo that I've been seeing ever since you arranged for the first, uh, one of my first executive exams a, a long time ago. We were talking about this fear, and he said, would it make you feel better if you were on a statin? You don't really need that, but for your own personal sense of fearlessness mm-hmm. and not fearing approaching that time period does taking something proactively make you feel better if that's the case we should take that that uh, protocol uh, because it would serve two purposes it would probably even though your cholesterol levels are not outrageous we can prevent that but that's your choice to make i can't make the choice for you but i can offer that as a way of mitigating your fear. That's the first time I've heard that story from you. You and I have shared a lot of stories, but that's the first time you've told me that story. I think it's a it's a wonderful story. I, I know Dr. Hensrud. I, I uh, interviewed him and got to know him when I was studying at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He's a fantastic person and a fantastic physician, and you're very fortunate to have him as your doctor, your primary doctor, Lou. Um, it's a beautiful story because um, it, he did exactly what we're writing about here, uh, and that is he mitigated your fear in a responsible way. Yeah. He didn't mitigate your fear by saying, telling you something he could not say. He could yeah. not say, you're never going to have a heart attack. Lou, you shouldn't be worrying about this. Because we do know that that uh, coronary uh, artery disease uh, can be inherited. We do know that's so an elevated risk factor in, in yeah. medicine, and you knew that. And so he he mitigated your fear, but he did it in a very responsible way, Lou, as opposed to an irresponsible way of not telling you the truth or right. telling you something that you couldn't you couldn't possibly know. Uh, how the future would would uh, turn out for you, and um, you know, a statin is it's really a, a, a miracle drug, and we're learning more and more about all of the other things that statins do other than lower cholesterol. Oh wow! And so there are other uses that it's being prescribed for now, as well as uh, for uh, for the cholesterol issue. Phenomenal. Len, the idea of uh, the other idea that's put forth is seamless service and the construct around teamwork and uh, collaboration. And in so many siloed organizations, as we were also talking uh, about the idea of hiring people, there was one client, which is Pizza Hut in the UK, that actually had the HR department reporting to marketing in a service business, the people were the most critical piece of their marketing, what their what their their whole experience was about. And so that you didn't concentrate on being just a benefits administrator as a as an HR department. You mm-hmm. saw your role as being much more critical and deeper in addition to that. So as we look at seamless service um, and the idea of fusing pieces together, working together better in organizations. Do you see that starting to happen at all in in some of the healthcare organizations in in that that you've looked at? It's it it hap- it's happening, Lou, in our most progressive organizations, organizations like the Mayo Clinic. Organizations like the three that we discussed that I studied in Wisconsin, 
organizations like Kaiser Permanente, which is a very innovative progressive uh, health maintenance organization uh, and operating mostly in the Western states, the United States, one of our biggest uh, health systems, really, really, uh, really so well designed in the way they provide service, both in-person and remote services and uh, on the internet, uh, telehealth, and in so many other ways. Um, it's being done um, by very progressive organizations in, in cancer that I've studied at, uh, not only in the United States, but in Europe. It's being done by this incredibly progressive organization, health system in the state of Pennsylvania called Geisinger. Uh, if uh, the people that, um, who are interested in healthcare, if the people in, interested in healthcare who are watching this podcast, Lou, have never heard of Geisinger, uh, they should go to the website. It's such a marvelous example of what's possible. Yeah. What's possible uh, in moving healthcare forward and being much more effective and much more efficient and much more patient-centered and family-centered. Uh, Geisinger is, is really a role model organization, as is Mayo, as is many yeah. others. So... It's happening, but it's happening in, in various pockets of excellence around this country, around the world. It's not happening universally in the United States. There's still far too much fragmented care, disjointed care, uncoordinated care, which is wasteful and also dangerous uh, for patients. When the different physicians and clinical teams taking care of the same patient don't coordinate care, don't talk to each other, don't learn from each other, uh, don't make sure that they're not using uh, medications or interventions that don't work well together, then it's uh, disjointed care, fragmented care, non-seamless care is dangerous. It's risky. It's also wasteful in many ways. I was always amazed by the button in the exam room at the Mayo Clinic that calls yeah. for a hall conference, uh, literally to bring together other physicians to discuss a case in the hall. Just absolutely amazing in terms of coordination. Len, there's one story in particular when, when you talk about uh, the whole construct of fear mitigation uh, and what we've been talking about, about empathetic creativity. There was the story uh, about Dr. Ackerman, Mike Ackerman at Mayo Clinic. Would you yeah. tell that story to conclude our, our session today? And sure. uh, Len, uh, it's, it runs chills up my spine when I think about what that spirit of volunteerism that you talk about, that, that idea of uh, discretionary effort. And then all of these other pieces all come together in this one man in such a miraculous way. Yes. Uh, thank you, Lou. And thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. And uh, yes, in the article we've discussed, Lou, uh, you're going to post it. Uh, you'll Will post you? it. With, yeah. with the uh, podcast, and I hope people who've been interested in the podcast will read the article, too. We actually end the article with this story that you've asked me, so I'll, I'll just read it. It's, it's right here at the end of the article, Lou, um, and here it goes. Stephanie, an eight-year-old girl from Michigan, was headed into surgery for heart transplantation at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She asked one of her doctors, Mike Ackerman, if she was going to live. Dr. Ackerman replied, of course you're going to live, and I'm going to dance with you at your high school prom. Ten years later, in 2009, with the consent of Stephanie's parents, but unknown to Stephanie, Dr. Ackerman flew to Michigan to surprise her at a prom. This story of a prom promise kept captures the beauty of healthcare at its best. 
a force for true healing for patients and for the clinicians who care for them. Len, God bless you for the work that you do and the difference in so many people's lives in my life and everyone you touch in so many ways through your writings, your lectures, but most of all through your example. You are one of, you are my dearest friend and just uh, mean so much to me and have made such a difference in my life. And I hope that people listening to this podcast read your articles, read the books that we're also going to post, uh, the Mayo uh, lessons, ma marketing le management lessons from the Mayo Clinic, and also the soul of customer service. You've made such a difference in the world. God bless you. And we're all so grateful for the work that you do and the support that your lovely wife, Nancy, and Texas A&M, and all of the academics you've written with and the articles that we've co-authored and God bless you and thank you very, very much for being such a dear friend and such a remarkable human being. Well, thank you, Lou, and God bless you too, my friend, my dear friend. Our the feeling is mutual, you know that. We've done so much together. We've been so many places together. We've written together. We have done seminars together. We've had meals together and we did this crazy I can't remember what it's called either thing where we had to uh, 20 seconds to get through a slide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it was Kichu. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> it was some Japanese <laughs> technique. But uh, thank you again. My love to Nancy, to you and your family. And uh, also, uh, Len's son. Uh, please, uh, Matt, football season, Matt Berry is Len's son. Matthew and, Berry. Yeah, ESPN. ESPN and fantasy football, the world's most recognized authority on fantasy football. So, <laughs> whether in the healthy fantasy football. <laughs> Len, be Thanks. well, my friend. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Clued In with Lou Carbone. If the advancement of the practice of experience management's financial and emotional impact drives you, please reach out to Lou on LinkedIn or visit experienceengineering.com or email us at info at expeng.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.